I did. I've been listening to you, and it's the only piece I'm going to have. It's it's, it, yeah, compared to the lemon, there's no, there's no comparison. It was it was advertised as new. I was reluctant to you know, sort of say, "Well, is it going to be any good?" I mean, very good. I think the choice is real. They 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 are either going to shame us into bringing. Wine and dessert like this every week, or or we've got to have them bring food every week, one or the other. Huh? A collection. Yeah, it is, it is. It's quite good. I couldn't make it. Couldn't make the apple. You couldn't make the apple. So you went and bought something, right? Oh God. Let's. Well, I was actually going to go down there. Let's start. Um, just a business matter before we before we start. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Need some help, Doug? Yeah, it was. Yeah, I looked at that when I saw it. No way. <laughs> it's not going to happen. I watched her make it, but I thought I could do it. A couple of things. God. Um, I put together some study guides, and I'm going to be behind time. Um, the likelihood is that you'll get them after you've read the chapter, which to my mind is a good thing because I'm really, you already know I'm worried that if I put these study guides out, you're not going to read. And that, that's a real concern of mine. Um, um, that's a concern, but that's not the reason I'll be behind times on it. It's that I've got all these notes and it wasn't something I was intending to do or planning on doing. It, it wasn't something I wanted to commit my time to, but it's been years since I've looked at Moby Dick and, and I always, um, I think, take too casually my experiences of it. Um, I, I know in my mind that I've got to go back and reread books every time I teach them because they always change. They always change. Um, the book stays the same, but you grow older and you just bring so much more to it, and that's been true for me all my life. So I've never been able to settle on notes from the past that I always have to rework things. And it's been a while since I've done Moby Dick, so I didn't, I, and I haven't done a study guide, but I'm putting this together, um, I think partly because you guys are so in earnest, and I know this isn't an easy work. Um, I know it's much easier than Shakespeare just in terms of the language, but still it's a complex work. And if it's got a prophetic aspect to it, as I think it does, then it deserves to be taken more seriously. So I'm, I'm trying to put this together, but it's going to take time. It, um, if you saw my notes, you'd understand why, I'm trying to work through the mess um, that's in my head. Um, <laughs> Anyway, they're coming. I'd, um, I'd like to ask that everybody um, pay donations for them, three, four dollars for each set. There will be five or six sets. Um, there's a lot there. Um, if you look at them and you've looked at the Ignacy Study Guide, you'll see immediately that the, there's no comparison. I mean, what Ignatius... It, it, there wasn't anybody to do it, apparently. And I think the way they've run the program, they wouldn't be as thorough as I am. So what you're getting is 
far, far and away beyond what they're doing, and I think you'll find it helpful. I'd like to ask all of you, I'd like to ask something all of you along these lines too, because it is a real concern of mine. Um, I, I didn't want to do the study guide, and you know that I'm reluctant because I don't want this to take the place of the reading. I, I, if you're going to take the study guide, I'd like all of you to hold yourselves in honor to do the best you can to read. I know that's hard, and sometimes I know you can't, but I'd ask you to try because I don't want the, the study guide to substitute for it. There just is no substituting for, the, for what I've been calling poetry. So. So if you could all play, pay three or four dollars for each of the sections. There's two there tonight, the first and second sections. Um, three or four dollars each, and that'll carry through for all of the sections. If you look at the, the structural breakdown that I gave you the first night, you'll see that it's broken down into chapters. I'm roughly going by mark stages. And I, some, what I mean by that will become a little bit clear in a minute, but according to this breakdown, there will be five sections. There's a good chance that there will be six. I have to see how it goes, because I want to try to be faithful to the structure of the work, um, and what that means you'll see a little bit more clearly in a minute, but anyway, so I'll put out the next study guide next week and try to get them out each week as we go, so by the end you'll have the whole book. Um, it would be great to think that you would pick this book up sometime and read it on your own after we do this. Last week when I walked away, I came away with these pages, how Fred Moser's invention is lighting up the world. They, were, they must have been here on the table. Do these belong to anybody in this group? No, I'm just going to... I think that's it. Um, all kidding aside for a moment, I'd like to thank Bob and Marcy again for um, how, generous, how generous you've been several times now um, in bringing food. I think Karen brought something too. Did you? Yeah. Thank, thank you all again. Anyway, thanks again. Thanks again. Um, does it bother you if you see us eating? No, it doesn't talking? at all. It does not at all. It does not at all. Does it bother you if I'm not eating? I, that, that's why I said a few minutes ago, I think we should have a class tonight. I think we should just maybe get drunk and eat. Um, I think that's it. I think that's it. I feel like I'm forgetting something, but I'm... too rushed trying to put together this stuff. I'm losing something somewhere. In, um, any prayers um, for anybody? Oh, the, 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 um, for the next several weeks, I thought what I would do for the lyrics is choose, go through some romantic poets. When I thought about it, because they're all contemporaries of Melville. We're in the 19th century. The course isn't historical, but we've been going through it chronologically. And it occurred to me, strangely, that very few of the romantics are religious. They're, they're just, it, that in itself was a striking revelation. Maybe I've had it before and just forgot it, but 
there's very little coming out of the romantics that would fit in with the catechetical purposes of what we're doing, but I'm going to see if we can't do something. We're going to do Blake tonight, and I'll do Blake again next week, and you'll see from the poetry that, that he does fit in with what we're doing, but um, I, think, I think I'm going to try to do that. If it doesn't um, fit in with what we've been doing, I've been choosing lyrics that reveal Christ in some way, they, they may help just in the sense that they'll make us aware of what's being lost, that they won't quite fit in with the poems that we've been doing. And that, that may be a good thing to see. Um, so we get a, um, a better sense of how we've come to where we are today. But um, we'll see. Anyway, I think what I'm going to do for the next few weeks is, while we're with Melville, um, choose lyrics from the Romantics. And Blake is the first of them, so we'll do him tonight. Anybody, would anybody, does anybody have any prayer requests? Probably Jesse. Jesse well, still. He's, well, he's taken his last first cycle uh, of a sequence of, uh, I guess, chemo, and I guess go, goes in, I guess, in two weeks. So you just took it this past weekend and so goes back for, for an evaluation yeah, and yeah. see where he's at. Yep, uh, yep, yep. Karen, I had you on my mind and your friend, it was your friend who came back, mm -hmm. right? I've forgotten his name, sorry. Daniel. Daniel, has he, have you seen him in church since? No, but his wife just came back from Mexico and she doesn't speak English well, so I don't think they went this past week, but they'll go to the Spanish Mass. What's his name again? Daniel. Daniel, yeah. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself to us, particularly in the Mass, um, your life itself that we carry within us. Um, help all of us to be strengthened, carrying you within us to find a supernatural strength, real, not in our heads, actually physical within us, um, to help us do those things that are not easy for us. Um, Father, um, Son, Holy Spirit, Christ, um, here we are, um, we've come to do your will. Help us, Father, to be the sons and daughters you have given each one of us to be. Christ, um, help us to be your friend, your brother, to love as you do. Holy Spirit, help us to serve as you do with the Father and Son. Let that be so for all of us. Give us the courage to do hard things. Um, ask a special prayer of grace for Jesse. Watch over him. Um, um, strengthen his heart. Give him a spirit of hope for all that he's undergoing. And ask a special blessing for um, Karen, sorry. Daniel. Daniel. Um, strengthen whatever brought him back to church. Let that not be a passing thing. Um, help him to back it up, um, um, to come regularly um, and grow closer to you. Um, and once again, I ask a blessing on all of us. Help us to have the courage to see difficult things here, not be afraid, and um, to give our lives to living them in all that we do. We offer all of this, ask all of this, Christ our Lord, um, amen. Yeah.
Okay, can you all pull out um, Blake? Blake did his work just before Melville. Um, I'm not an, a scholar on Melville enough to know if he read Blake. I'm not sure that anybody does, I don't know. It's hard to believe that he wouldn't have read him, but um, he was writing when Blake, uh, Milton was, I mean, sorry, Melville was coming into his own. Um, Melville writes Moby Dick mid-century, I think it was published in 1850, 1851, I can't remember. He and Hawthorne published um, in um, um, sequential years, 1850, 1851. I think Moby Dick was published first. Um, Blake wrote his, his he did it, all of his great artistic work um, just a generation before then, but it would have been um, well known and, and received in, in England and Europe and in America. Um, and remember what I said before, if you look at the novels, Moby Dick is such an anomaly, it's a, such a strange thing. If you look at the novels being written in, in Europe, there's nothing that's religious in the sense that this is, there's no novelist dealing with metaphysical issues. This is a distinctively American thing. And, and you know that from your reading because there, there are those times when Ishmael talks about writing this new thing, it's not a tragedy, it's not a comedy, it's, it's a disquieting thing. There's not anything like it in the world. There wasn't up to that time. Um, Blake was writing religious poetry, and he sets himself off from most of the romantics. Most secular teachers in the schools won't present him that way. But Blake had this tense, intense belief that, that Christ was God in a visionary way. And he believed that the greatest poets were visionary prophets. So he really fits in, in that sense, with what we're doing. If you read the other romantics, you won't get close to seeing anything like this, okay? Um, let me leave it at that. Uh, just a, a word about the first poem. He wrote two sets of poems, um, what, he, what he called Songs from Innocence and Songs from Experience. He had this deep, abiding sense that there was this goodness in, in us as human beings, but there was also this dark side to us. And so if you take the poems from both of those sets, Innocence and Experience, they line up as contraries, they match up as contraries. For every poem that he wrote in Innocence, he wrote a correspondingly dark one. I, we can't go through them, we just don't have, that's not what we're doing. But it would be good to know that. At the very outset, at the beginning, as the headnote sort of poem, showing the direction of what he was going to do is this poem called The Introduction from Songs, Songs of Experience, or Songs of Innocence. Watch it, I mean, listen to it as he goes through it, because what you see is Blake writing a poem about his call to be prophetic. Poets don't do this. That's what he did, because he was aware that the world was changing we, that Europe and the West had lost its bearings. It, it, it couldn't be said anymore that the West was Christ, Christian. Um, the West was losing its Christian faith already. I mean, this is 1800. Um, and he's answering a call, to, like a prophet, to call people back to Christianity. Now watch the poem, listen, because what you'll see is the progression in which that call unfolded for him. He begins piping, playing on an instrument. 
Um, an angel comes to him. He calls it a child. An angel comes to him, tells him to do something. He does it. And then he says, pipe. And then he says, drop your pipe, sing. And then he says, stop singing, write. Now if you watch that, it's interesting because the movement of his work goes from um, a mode that's more confined because it depends on proximity, one hearing, or, you know, the, the, the flute, and it's music. It moves from music to singing, so the word explicitly enter in. He's got to use words to sing a song. He's becoming more articulate. It, it moves towards something more universal. And then he writes, so the mode now can be made available to everybody, not just those who are within hearing range. So it's not an accident. If you think about this, you can see him growing into his calling. What he begins with, where he goes, and what he arrives at, where he ends up. Okay? And then I'll just read the second one just to, um, to have another poem by Blake tonight. And then next week we'll pick up with the poems on the back. <coughs> William Blake, introduction. Piping down the valley, valley's wild. Piping songs of pleasant glee. On a cloud I saw a child, and he laughing said to me, Pipe a song about a lamb, so I piped with merry cheer. Piper, pipe that song again, so I piped, he wept to hear. Drop thy pipe, thy happy pipe, sing thy songs of happy cheer. So I sung the same again, while he wept with joy to hear. Piper, sit thee down and write in a book that all may read. So he vanished from my sight, and I plucked a hollow reed. And I made a rural pen, and I stained the water clear, and I wrote my happy songs. Every child may joy to hear. The lamb. Little lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee? Gave thee life and bid thee feed by the stream and o'er the mead. Gave thee clothing of delight, softest clothing, woolly, bright. Give thee such a tender voice, making all the veils rejoice. Little lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee? Little lamb, I'll tell thee, little lamb, I'll tell thee. He is called by thy name, for he calls himself a lamb. He is meek and he is mild, he became a little child. I a child and thou a lamb, we are called by his name, little lamb. God bless thee. It's stunning, isn't it? They're so simple. I mean, you write, I mean, you know, the idea that poets have to be very articulate and sophisticated, he just slams that to pieces. You can't be more simple than this. It, it, it's amazing how much he gets into a few sentences that are simply written, you know? It's just amazing. Okay. Moby Dick. Just a very quick review. Um, Last week, we, um, we took a look at Melville's presentation of the, the New England culture. Um, if we take a look at each of the people that Ishmael encounters, we find something wrong. Um, he's in a culture in which people seem to be holding on to a Christian faith, but failing it somehow. 
and we saw that again and again and again. Um, when he comes to New Bedford, remember he goes to Peter Coffin's um, bar and he sees Lazarus outside. That's the first instance, well, we, um, remember when he came to the black church, he likened it to Gomorrah, so in some sense, I think we're, we're meant to have questions of whether or not Gomorrah is present in New England, that there's something of that working in our culture. Um, we saw Lazarus being ignored outside of Peter Coffin's establishment, and it, um, that in itself is a searing indictment because here's a businessman who's making money off of people. He can't make money unless people come inside, and he's doing nothing to take whatever he makes and put it to use for this guy out on the curb. Queequeg is looked down on by most of the people, and, and most of them, is, as, um, as, as Ishmael presents them, are Presbyterian. It's largely a Presbyterian, sort of broad church Protestant culture. They make fun of him, they look down at him, they're shocked when they see Ishmael and Queequeg together. Um, remember the kids make fun of him, and that little bumpkin got spanked, and and Queequeg jumped in without even hesitating. Immediately, instinctively, he jumped. There's a goodness in him that was shown. Yeah. Not a thought, he didn't think about it, he acted. There's an innate goodness in him. And I have to come back to that because Melville does something really amazing with Queequeg. He, he, he obviously admires this native goodness. But what we're going to see eventually is that it's, it's act absolutely impotent to deal with spiritual evil. That's one of the critiques that we're going to find that none of these people, none of these people can deal with Ahab, no matter how good they are, no matter how morally good or naturally good, in, in the case of say, somebody like Peter, no matter how much natural goodness somebody has, they cannot deal with the problem that Ahab presents uh, them with. Um, we saw Father Mapple's service sermon. Um, I asked a question last time. Um, I think some of you have mixed feelings about them, and, and I remember that I think Jane and Marcy said, good for him, go. Um, it, it's interesting because um, in some sense he's, he's saying what somebody who's intensely committed to Christianity would say, and I, we have the sense that he can only say that because he's a Jonah figure himself, that he's had to go through hardships and what he brings back is what Jonah brought back. He, he's speaking to a Christian culture that's lost its bearing and saying, get real. You know? But there's that passage where he says, burn and destroy sin. You know? And it seems to me one of the things we're meant to ask ourselves about Father Mapple is how much mercy he brings. Um, there seems to be an Old Testament quality running through that New England culture. Very Old Testament, very legalistic. Um, I used the phrase before that, that it's disintegrated into a moral code, that, that the, the sacraments are not a part of that culture anyway. So what started out as this very um, vital um, Puritan culture in its beginnings has declined into a moral code. They don't have the sacraments to, to um, support them. So. Um, however, however much truth there is in what Mapple says, it seems to me we have to question how much mercy or charity he brings to what he's doing. Um, Peleg and Bildad are, are motivated by um, cupidity, by greed. 
Bildad is reading from that passage in the Bible, um, lay up not your treasure on earth, and, and, and immediately when he's introduced to Ishmael, he cheats him. And he does it with some sense that this is a guilty man, so he lines up with um, the captain in the, the Jonah story. And we saw Mrs. Hussey, who's far more concerned about keeping her house clean and neat and not spending money than she does loving. This man may have killed himself. He's a cannibal, easier to look down on, you know, if she's a Christian. But um, still, there's a lack of something in the faith. So character after character after character shows us something's dying out in this culture. And I tried to lay out the differences between Catholicism and um, Protestantism um, just to make us aware, not to um, remove us from this critique. Um, but one of the things I tried to stress is the importance of tradition for the Catholic faith and the sacraments. That, um, that at the center of the Catholic faith is the actual presence of Christ. So there's a, there's a real presence of a divine power at the center of our faith that is not present in the, for the greater part of the Protestant world, right? They're reading scripture and interpreting scripture. It's all about reading. But taking a sacramental life into you and living it or being strengthened by it is foreign to this culture. And I just want to stress this again. I, I don't want to separate us from that because I think this is a great work. And if we don't see ourselves in this, then I, as I've said of every work we've read, then I think we're missing. If we pick and choose who we identify with, then I think we're not reading well. And, and I remember saying that emphatically when we did um, Othello, because I think I made the claim then that if we don't learn to identify ourselves with Othello, <laughs> hard as that might be, then we're missing something because we're fallen creatures. There's an evil in every one of us. I'm going to come back to that here because I think there's an Othello-like quality, I mean an Iago-like quality at work here. So we see very little that's sacramental in this New England culture. It seems to be dying out. Um, we talked about, oh, here, and I want to, just to reinforce this, we didn't read these passages last time, but I, but I want to do it today because it will finish off this section that starts the book on land. Turn to page 142. Two things are important here as um, Ishmael sets off for sea. One is that it's Christmas, and the other is this farewell take. And I want to come back to the Christmas thing in a minute, but right now take a look at Peleg and Bildad are the owners, so they take this whale boat with them as, the, as Pequod is taken out, out of the harbor, and then they leave the ship and return in this small boat. Um, on 142 at the bottom, this is important, we didn't read it, but I, I, I want you to carry this with you as we leave land and set up for sea. These are the two owners of the ships giving their farewell. It's Christmas, bottom of 142. Meantime, overseeing the other part of the ship, Captain Peleg ripped and swore astern in the most frightful manner. I almost thought he would sink the ship before the anchor could, uh, could be got up. Involuntarily, I paused on my land spike and told Queequeg to do the same. Looks like the captain's going nuts. He's so frantic about what he's doing. I was comforting myself, however, with the thought 
that in pious Bildad might be found some salvation, spite of his 777 delay. When I felt sudden sharp poke in my rear and turning around was horrified at the apparition of Captain Peleg in the act of withdrawing his leg from my immediate vicinity. That was my first kick. Remember the thump that gets passed around. This is the, the captain's farewell to the sailors and it gives Ishmael a kick to say goodbye to him. Is that the way they heave in the merchant service? He roared, spring, thou sheep head, spring, and break thy backbone. Go down. Bildab kept leading off with his psalmody. Thinks I, Captain Peleg must have been drinking something today. They sing this song below, Sweet Fields Beyond. It's a, it's a pastoral song, um, sentimental, um, quiet. It speaks of um, beautiful places. Never did those sweet words sound more sweetly to me than then. They were full of hope and fruition. This is the beginning of a, of a journey that's going to end in disaster. So this is an, a, a, a focused glimpse of Ishmael in his innocence. How much he idealizes things as he heads off. Spite of this frigid winter night in the boisterous Atlantic, spite of my wet feet and wet jacket, there was yet it then seemed to me many a pleasant haven in store and meet. It's like getting a new job. I mean, find your own analogy. It's like getting a new job and you enter new, with all this great hope and expectation and two weeks later, you wish you'd never signed up in the business. <laughs> um, on 144, 145 at the bottom, the captains keep, as they're, now as they're leaving, these are their parting words. The very bottom, 144. Careful, careful, come build that boy, say your last. Luck to ye, Starbuck, luck to ye, Mr. Stubb, luck to ye, Mr. Flask, goodbye and good luck to you all. And this day three years I'll have a hot supper smoking for you in old tent Tucker. They're not putting, they, they, they've gone on whaling voyages, so they've risked their lives, but they're not risking their lives here. They're owners, they're saying goodbye these men. It's gonna be a three year voyage. Ishmael was offered the 777th lay. You know that Pilly got it down to 300, but. Um, God bless ye, and have ye in his holy keeping, men murmured old Bildad almost incoherently. I hope you find weather now so that Captain Ahab may soon be moving among ye. A pleasant sun is all he needs. Be careful in the hunt, ye mates. Don't stave the boats needlessly, you harpooners. Good white cedar planks is raised full 3% within the year. It's gonna lose money if the, if the boat goes down. Go down, don't wail it too much a Lord's days, men, but don't miss a fair chance either. That's rejecting heaven's good gifts. Have an eye to the molasses tears, Mr. Stubb. It was a little leaky, I thought. If you touch at the islands, Mr. Flask, beware of fornication. Goodbye, goodbye, don't keep that cheese too long down in the hole, Mr. Starbuck. It'll spoil, be careful with the butter. 20 cents the pound it was, and mind ye if, that stopped. Their last parting, concerns are for the money. <laughs> I, we didn't do Shakespeare's Tempest, and I, I mean there's a lot of plays I wish we had time for, but we didn't. Shakespeare's Tempest begins with a storm on Prospero's Island. He's, a, he's an artist figure. He's concocted the storm, and the opening begins with the captain of the ship coming out, the captain of the ship coming out and saying, bestir, bestir. He gets the head of the, the men to get on the shipman, he disappears. 
it, it, to me, it's one of the most extraordinary openings in all of Shakespeare because what he's showing, if, if you know the play The Tempest, all the aristocrats come up from below because it's a storm and they, they presume to have the knowledge and power to, to do what needs to be done to avoid going down. And the head mate says, get below, you do assist the storm. Now think about that. The captain says, stir them in, stir them in, and disappears. The head mate says to the sailors, get busy. All the lords come up because very intelligent people always think they know what's best. And what they're doing is helping the ship to go down. What Shakespeare's showing is the importance of delegating authority and power. The, 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 ones, the ones who should rule are the ones who know best. Who knows how to run a ship? The mates, the sailors. When the aristocrats come up who are, who are really smart, they think they know better when they don't. Now compare that with Bildad and don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. You know, the captains, and where is Ahab? Move around. So in this last parting, we get this ironic shot of what seems to be this innocent moment, and, and yet it's a very, another telling example of something wrong in this culture. Things are out of order. Uh, now add to that that this is Christmas Day. This is the day in which a God came into the world for man's salvation and to offer man hope. Now what are, what's Melville doing? Um, is this ironic? There are some, I've told you, there are some critics who read Moby Dick as a, as a tale about this inscrutable, what they call the, the head the head editor of um, the Norton anthology, anthology, which is probably the biggest anthology on major works, says that, that Moby Dick's about an inscrutable mystery. So this is Christmas Day. They set off on their voyage. Is the end of this going to be just an inscrutable mystery? Um, is this an ironic comment on a failure of Christianity? Or, or is this actually the beginning of something that would be hopeful because of what Ishmael brings back? The thing to remember right now is this is Christmas Day. This is the beginning of the voyage. So keep that in mind when you, when you go ahead. Okay, so right now we're leaving land. Um, so these are some of the aspects of this critique of Christianity that, that um, Melville's giving us. And we talked about Ishmael as a Jonah figure, finally. Um, remember that, that what happens with him and the captains exactly lines up with what happens with Jonah and the captain. And if we keep that in mind, I think it'll, it'll help make sense of so much of what happens on, on the journey. Um, turn, turn to chapter 20, page 136. <coughs> Fred, it goes to, I think it goes to your question a couple of weeks ago when, when, I, when I had said something about, when I think we were, I began to introduced this notion of Ishmael as a Jonah figure and, and asked whether he wasn't hiding from something the way Jonah was because that's the way he's presented. Remember, he's hiding from God because there's nothing explicit said about, along those lines. He, he's, he's melancholy. He may be suicidal. He's depressed. He's bringing up funeral lines. He, he's got a gun ready to shoot. I mean, it's, you know, it's all comic, um, but it's there. Here, before they go to sea, we have this description of Ishmael, 136. 
He's describing all of these things that have been occurring and remember now this is Ishmael reflecting back. So we're somewhere between these two Ishmaels, the journeyist and the poet who's writing about his experiences. To these questions they would answer that he was getting better and better and was expected aboard every day. This is about Ahab. Meantime, the two captains, Peleg and Bildad, could attend to everything necessary to fit the vessel for the voyage. If I had been downright honest with myself, I would have seen very plainly in my heart that I did but half fancy being committed this way to so long a voyage without once laying my eyes on the man who was to be the absolute dictator of it so soon as the ship is sailed. But when a man suspects any wrong, it sometimes happens that if he's already involved in the matter, he insensibly strives to cover up his, suspicious, his suspicions even from himself. And much this way it was with me. I said nothing and tried to think nothing. By the way, the resemblance between him and Stubb at this moment is starting because remember, whenever Stubb has difficulties, he says, it's his 11th commandment not to think. <laughs> he just stops thinking. Um, um, anyway, there. The last thing, remember that the, the, the send away episode is the Elijah episode. On the morning that they're going aboard, he puts those questions to him. Did you see them? See if you can find them. See if you can find them. It's like that question at the beginning of the Hamlet. Who's there? And what we're going to discover later is that um, they are the sources of the evil behind Ahab. And they're hidden, they're secretive, they're shadowy, and Ahab passes, I mean, uh, Ishmael passes it off. Ish, Elijah is aware that something else is going on. So he's the only figure on land that we meet that seems to have any sense of real evil. And, and that's what Melville leaves us with as we head to sea. Okay, so that's just a quick review of, of where we are. Um, let me stop. Any questions about that? We're headed to sea, and remember the sea in all of the works of literature, the Odyssey, um, the Aeneid, the Divine Comedy in the Paradiso. Dante compares himself to a bark setting out on an ocean, the ocean of grace, that, that the sea is always an image of what man can't control. So in, in leaving land to go to sea, we are entering clearly, explicitly, entering into metaphysical depths. What, what Melville's making clear is that we are now leaving an area in which men don't deal with depths. They're too comfortable. This is a bourgeois Christianity. And now they're going into an area um, that, that by its very nature presents dangers all the time. So we're, we're going to look at those things that the people on land are not dealing with at all. So it, it's not just a transition from one place to another. Symbolically, it's loaded with meaning. Okay. Yeah. What is, I mean, we hear that Quiquate's a cannibal, but what do they understand a cannibal is? Oh, good question. I'm glad you asked that. In this, well, can, what, can anybody, in this Christian culture, how would they have understood a cannibal? Eating hmm? human flesh. Sorry? Unregenerate, unsaved, right? They've not been saved. I mean, the whole mission of Christianity is to go in. I mean, that's our call. It was the call this morning in the gospel. 
to go baptize, to proclaim Christ, to take Christ to the world. So the Puritans coming here would have looked at the cannibal as the unregenerate, the person in needy and saving. He's, he's, he's outside that pale, something to be looked down on. It's a good question. I, that's, I, I was actually going to make that point a little bit later, but does that answer it? No, no. no? Okay, go ahead. What? I'm confused. Say that all over again. I just didn't get that. I thought a cannibal is eating flesh. It is. It is. Um, and I was wondering yeah. about that. Sorry, too. I didn't want that. I wasn't contradicting that. He is. Okay. But in term, in Christian terms, the, the issue would have been for them that he's outside the pale of Christianity. He's among the unregenerate, unsaved. He, he's somebody who needs to be saved to be brought into Christianity. Um, but. I was wondering about that too because it said cannibal, but then there really wasn't any reference to the actual my definition of what I would think a cannibal would be. But on page 123 at the bottom, when it talks about his Ramadan, <laughs> it was talking about um, uh, when he was at home. It was after a great feast given by his father, the king, on the mm -hmm. evening of a great matter. Mm -hmm. Thou, wherein fifty of the enemy had been killed by about two o'clock. He got sick. And all, indigestion. And all cooked and eaten that very evening. Yeah, and he got sick. Yes. So, so there, it does mean that, but it also has. Yeah, the deeper. I mean, the a cannibal. I mean, by definition, but for in terms of the Christian perspective here, the concern is he is unregenerate. Um, Wait, just back, by the way, I don't want to lose that for a minute because it's really, I, we talked about that last week. Remember when the two of them were talking about conventions and Ishmael laughs at Queequeg because he puts his luggage in the wheelbarrow and then puts the wheelbarrow on his shoulder because he doesn't know what to do with it. And then Queequeg gives him the example of this very ceremonious feast when they brought out this drinking bowl and the captain, who was unfamiliar with these customs, thought it was a washing bowl, put his hands in it, and when it was what they were all going to drink. And then we learned from that episode that, that they <laughs> killed 50 people and, and Ishmael stuffed, or I mean, Queequeg stuffed himself all night, gorged himself on human flesh, and then got sick. <laughs> um, so they are, he is a cannibal. But, I, but the, in terms of the story, he also, he's also unregenerate. He's not been saved by Christ. Uh, well, you know, we talked last time about how he exhibited um, more kindly actions than the Christians. Yes, yes. So, I don't know, there was something going on in my mind about, okay, he's eating flesh and blood, but he's acting like a Christian. And, you know, with the Eucharist, I don't know, there was something like let me let me let me try to resolve this now because I don't want to okay. I, I want to be careful of our time. What what it seems to me what Melville's doing is showing us that there is this inherent goodness in people, which runs counter to a Christian a Protestant world that believes that's one of the dogmas of the Protestant mind that we are in, innately depraved that after our fall the consequences of the fall for the Protestant is depravity. So what, what Melvin is doing is showing us that there are these people, native, natives who are not Christians, who have this innate goodness that in some ways makes them better than these Christians with their hypocrisy. So it's just one more way of shedding a light on the, the problems with this Christian culture. Queequeg looked up to Christians and wanted to be one right. until he right. came in contact with right. them and he thought they were terrible right. Right. and very right. bad people. Right. 
Right. So he didn't want to be one right. anymore. Doesn't, but doesn't that just reinforce the critique here? I mean, it's from another perspective, it, show, it shines a light on this Christian culture to show its hypocrisy. So, yeah. I mean, I hope you guys will go back and read this book after we're done because, because you'll so enjoy it more when you just read it through. But there's almost nothing that happens in that opening that, that isn't, it, it's all presented so comically because we get it from Ishmael when he's this young, innocent, bumpkinish kind of guy. But what he's showing us as a, even though it's presented comically, has a spiritually dark side to it. It's all going to come to light at sea, too. Okay, tonight, the plot. I haven't gone into this, but I want to take a second with it. You remember when we did the, the Shakespeare plays that um, every, every drama... Had a, had a particular form. And if you think about the epics that we've read, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Divine Comedy, the Aeneid, all of them, they all follow this same plot motion, this action. Remember Aristotle's definition of a plot is it's the imitation of an action. So all the episodes that make up the plot, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, that's the plot. That's the surface level. It's the plot as Ishmael's presenting it. That plot imitates an action, an underlying action. We can call it a movement of spirit. A change, a change taking place. In the Iliad, remember we talked about it, if you look at the Iliad, everything that begins the work is reversed at the end. Because a spiritual change takes place. Something enters into that world through Achilles. Remember, he's, he carries a divinely appointed task. He carries it out with what he does. Um, so he becomes the means of changing, answering the disorders in this culture. That's true of every epic. Odysseus is the same. He brings something into the world of marriages that answers the disorders in marriages. The same thing with Aeneas. Same thing with Dante. Every hero we've read. And the reason this is important because what it shows is that the plot is an affirmation of reason. That reason is asserting itself. That, that something that's become irrational, disordered, is answered. And goodness is... Um, reaffirmed at the end. It, re it returns to the world, whatever, whatever disorders we're looking at in that particular world, right? So, um, every plot begins with, uh, with an opening conflict. It's followed by a complication. <coughs> it moves towards a crisis. A denouement, and it ends with a resolution. Whatever the disorder was that began, the action is answered. It's brought to rest. So that we enter into a disturbing world, but we're brought to rest. We take a joy 
the epics always end with some goodness. That's true for the tragedies, it's true for the comedies. Yeah? Even the tragedies, even though the cost is very dark, they all answer an injustice. It's brought to rest. Something new is about to begin. Okay? What's the Some of you What's look. The word? What does that mean? Um, it means it means answering the wrongs and bringing them, um, um, sorting them out as a preparation for the resolution. So, Dave, what is a denouement? I don't know what the French word means. It's an unraveling. Yeah. So, and remember, this is, now this is universal. If any work of art, every work of art, when if it's good at all, implies a reason or we couldn't begin to look at the disorders that the, that the work is calling to mind for us. So every work of art implies an act of reason working somewhere and depths of it that ordinarily people don't go. That's why we can go through a story and the story doesn't fall apart at places. So it's true of a Jane Austen novel, Dostoevsky, Faulkner, it doesn't matter. It's true here. Um, the same form, the same plot um, pattern is going to apply here. So, Moby Dick begins with this critique of Christianity on land. We set off for sea, that's where we're going right now. In the chapters that we're looking at tonight, I'd call them the setup chapters. Um, setup chapters. Because everything that Ishmael looks at, when he, he looks at the mates, he looks at Ahab, he looks at the whale, um, the men fight. He looks at um, Stubbs' response to what happens when Ahab gathers the men together to unite them in his cause. He looks at Stubb and Starbuck and all of the men to show that um, to show what's happened. That even though they've given themselves to Ahab's quest, there's problems. We'll look at them in a minute. But it's a sort of it's a sort of setup. When we get to see what we're going to look at are all the metaphysical depths, the metaphysical issues primarily about good and evil that nobody except Elijah is dealing with in land. So at sea we're going into the depths and we're going to explore those metaphysical levels of reality um, but people on land are paying no attention to it all and they don't see the cost of it. Um, that's what it means to enter the deeps, to go to sea. And if you, if you, if you looked at my, that, that one-page structural thing, um, you'll get a sense of the structure. And, and there's a, um, a number of things that we've got to pay attention to here. But one of the things that, when we get there, that you want to pay close attention to are all the GANs. Because since the Pequod's going to be away from home for three years, it's, you can imagine, it's so important for them to get a sense of what's going on at home. So every time they meet a ship, a gam takes place. That's what a gam is. And they exchange news. 
let everybody know what's happening. <laughs> what we're going to discover is not only things happening at home, but we're going to discover what's happening as these people, these sh various ships, pursue Moby Dick and other whales. Some ships are going to have encountered him, and they're going to be almost destroyed. <clears throat> so when you look at the gams, remember that every gam helps give us another view of this strange creature, this Moby Dick. It reminds me of the, um, the battles in the Iliad. Remember when we talked about them, there was an order to the battles, and every one of them um, um, shed some light on the nature of honor. What was at issue in honor that the men weren't seeing? We're going to see the same thing here at sea. So now we've entered these depths. And what we get in the opening chapters are all these, what I would call, setup things. Um, a couple of really major questions here at the outset, and then I want to look at the ship. Um, what we learn about the ship at the outset. I've got a troubling question I want to ask you guys, because it goes right to the heart of um, this book, and I'd like everybody to keep it in mind. It, it, it's my effort to keep alive the catechetical aspect, because there are times you know that I worry about literature may be too soft. But we're here. Every once in a while, I find myself putting a, trying to put a scare into you. I remember when we were doing the Aeneid, and I said, the, the Aeneid is not for timid people because it, it's dealing with really violent reality. And hell, Dante's Inferno is the same. To look at hell, it seems to me, really truthfully, takes a lot of courage because it means looking at sins that ordinarily we don't see in ourselves. We, we don't have that kind of depth of vision. That's why poets are so important. Um, here's my question. Remember, every epic that we've read has been about a founding. And I'm treating Moby Dick as, a, as an epic. Um, every epic poet has given us a story about a hero who bears a divine task. He has to carry something other people don't. We can look at Ahab as that figure. He's dealing with um, ultimate questions, questions about ultimate reality, but nobody else in the book is. And so is Ishmael. So both of those figures line up, even if they do it in opposite ways. Every epic's been about a founding. What are the disorders that Melville's addressing here in America? What's wrong with America? And um, is there a refounding at the end? What is it that Ishmael brings back? If we're Nineveh and he's a Jonah figure, what is he bringing back that's crucial for us to face if we're to recover some order? Now, you know that most people who read Moby Dick read it as this fabulous... In high school, they read it as this unbelievable adventure story. If you've seen the Gregory Beck movie, you know that Ahab is this maniac and chasing this whale because he took off his leg. Well, I hope you're beginning to see it's about, it's about a lot more than that. So if Ishmael is a Jonah figure and he, and he, survived, he was allowed to survive it, and when you read the ending, it's, gonna, it's, gonna be, it's just stunning, just stunning. When you watch the ending and you suddenly see him pop up with a coffin, a coffin, and see all that had to happen for him to survive, you either say, this was, this was a chance occurrence that depended on 50 coincidences, 
which means it wasn't chance, um, or, or, or it was providential. Um, the, the God who looked over after Jonah is looking after Ishmael. What is he bringing back for us? Okay, Just one of the larger questions for the work for us to keep in mind. Because that's the, the question that we're going to deal with at the very end when we, when, when we look at the end. Here's the question I want to put before we get there to, to keep with us as we go along. Um, remember I said that if you look at the English novels and European novels in the 19th century, they're all secular. Jane Austen doesn't touch God, and I can't say enough about her. I just think she's extraordinary. If you look at all of them, Dickens gets close once in a while. Thackeray, Trollope, you know, Fielding, all those. Um, Melville is dealing explicitly with a religious issue, and remember we talked about the fact that America was different from other nations because its founding was explicitly religious. And I made the claim that in some ways that helps account for the violence of our character, that we seem to go to extremes in everything we do. There's a real violence. We see it everywhere around us right now in this exchange of power. Here's my question. Um, if, if Ahab and Ishmael are images of something fundamentally American, um, and, and they and what happens at sea is do we explore these metaphysical realities that they're dealing with, that they, that they become aware of? What are they? What is it in us, what is it in us as characters here on land that we don't see that makes us so potentially violent as a people? I'm asking that really seriously too. I mean, that goes to the catechetical part. The, at the center of this quest, remember, is this belief in, in Ahab that there's something evil, inherently evil in nature. And it's responsible for taking off, for dismembering him. And we learn from the opening that there isn't anybody on this ship who, who doesn't share in that feeling. When Ahab gathers the, the, all the ship, the crew together to involve them directly in his quest, he says, we're hunting this whale. And Starbuck says, no, I didn't come here to, to hunt or to do my captain's vengeance. I came here financially to hunt whales. All of the men identify with Ahab, and, and Quiquick, or Ishmael explicitly says, I was one among them. That every man felt that he had been unfairly treated in life and wanted to get back at life, this quest. So there's this tendency in Americans to want to get back, yeah. to blame, to hurt, to wound that's at the center of our soul. Now, how's that for catechism? <laughs> so I'm asking, what is it? In our, because we are a, a people apart. We've been called apart. This, I mean, this is our, our founding, city on a hill, a Christian people. We, and we, it seems that we've lost sight of that. But at the center of it is, as, at least as Melville's showing it, is this um, aggression and remember all the passages that I read to you last night, or last week. Um, all those descriptions of the, of the Quakers attempting to conquer the world, vindictively to go at it, to master nature, to, to subjugate it, to bring it under control so that they could benefit from it. So what we have in this Pequod ship is a ship going out. It's an image of an American enterprise, an industrial enterprise, attempting to wrest a living from nature but it's going to do it violently. 
It's going to kill these whales. And it's doing it um, in opposition to what we understand to be this pacifism of the Quaker character, who's Christians. So my question is this. What is it at the, at the root? What's the cause of this? Is this in us as a people? Where did it come from? And is it buried in all of us whether we know it or not? And if this is prophetic and, and the poets are, are like the poets of the Old Testament in asking us to look at those things we ordinarily don't look at, what are we being asked to look at here? How's that for dark? <laughs> I hope I did that well. Is that clear? Huh? Did I? Good. Wait, let me just, let me, let me shorten it. I'm coming. Wait a sec. I want to, uh, let me just repeat this, if I can, briefly to, to try to get point to it. Ahab is the central character. Ahab is a subordinate. But we know that, or I mean Ishmael, that everything we get is through Ishmael so that he finally becomes the dominant character. There are these two characters. They are involved in this quest to take vengeance on this thing of nature. It wants to strike at it. It takes place on a business enterprise, a, a quest to get out of nature something for their living. But all the descriptions of it are conquest, violence, vindictive. Ahab blames the whale. He faults other people. The men, after the quarterdeck scene, when he involves them in the quest, they start fighting. Dagu takes out a knife and these two men are going to get into a knife fight, even though they're supposed to be united. Later in the, in the story, we're going to have this night when, when they're burning whale and flames are going to go up in the dark night and it's going to be like a black mass. We're going to see these dark forces. So it's all those things that nobody on land looks at. Now my question is, if, this, if they image something in us as Americans, if this is what this is, what is it? Where did it come from? If this is prophetic, I'm saying it is, what are we being asked to look at? I don't want to try to answer that tonight. I want to set that question out to see what Melva has to say. But, but it seems to me it's important if we're looking at this as an American epic and we're putting it in the context of all these other epics we've been looking at it, this is one of the major questions we're being asked of. So, yeah, sorry. We've also asked the same question of other countries, other civilization, other peoples. And if we can, I, I can, I'm not denying that it isn't valid when you want to look at America, but I'm also asking, isn't it also valid for many others? Yeah, my, my short answer to that would be absolutely yes, except if you look at, tri if you look at tribal, let's say tribal countries in, in Africa or Serbia or wherever, whatever country you want to pick, if you look at third world, undeveloped countries, it seems to me with, with tribes killing each other for conquest, or some, some are pacific, quietist, you know, not, not warlike. But if you take other peoples and other nations, um, you'll see something of that same aspect. So yes to that. Right, but, but has any nation ever emerged like Rome or like America where an entire nation becomes committed in its identity as a commercial enterprise that does what America does. Because now I'm not talk we're not talking about tribes or small nations. We're talking about the largest, most powerful nation in the world and its character. I mean, that's what I'm assuming that what we're discovering as we read through this book. 
And that's a major question for us to ask. We're setting off for sea. We're looking in metaphysical depths. We're going to be looking at good and evil more deeply than people do in land. What are we going to be facing? If this is an epic, and it's an American epic, is Melville showing us something about our character that defines us as a nation with all of our noble ideals as a Christian people? I just want to throw that out. Keep a darkness here. There's a, so, just for starting this thing, I, I just, I After that, I need another glass of wine. <laughs> captured, captured my, my interest was the aspect that, okay, these people are going out to sea, and yet you would get the impression right off the bat because of this distribution of these 700th or 300th slice. Why would you do this? It sounds like you're the, the I mean, it's certainly not for greed or avarice or, or whatever. Not even sounds like you're, you, you're only, I guess, living off of the, the, the people who provide your food on board the ship. And I mean, if you're not going into port very frequently or the like, I mean, which obviously you didn't. Why? What would be the what? What the hell would be the motivation for wanting to go to sea and wanting adventure, to adventure? Adventure, Bob. Well, hey, I, I've been on the adventure kick. I know you. You. You, you know. You, after a while. It, Wait. Let's take up the question because we've got to go on. But yeah. go ahead. Go back to the beginning when Ishmael said, "Explain why he likes to go back to sea." Yeah. No. I. It's a. It's a release. It's a. It's an escape. Almost. Yeah. He got fed up with being on land, so yeah. go to sea and change it. Right. Let's just say. Let's just say it's it's multifaceted. Yeah. Let's just say it's multifaceted. That there's an adventure aspect to it, but there's yeah. also a self-preservation. People have to work and have a living. Right, exactly. Remember, when everybody sets off, I mean, just let's be clear about this. When everybody sets off, the implicit under or explicit understanding of it on the part of everybody is this is a commercial enterprise. They're going yeah, to make right. money. Right. It's to take care of their families, to provide it. So in that sense, they we can identify with that because all of us work, we have jobs, we support our... But, but at, immediately, as soon as they set to sea, in the quarterdeck scene, Ahab brings everybody on deck, and, and suddenly we find that we're involved in a, in a completely different kind of enterprise, although the original motive was adventure, economy, sure. business. And then we see, we see this darker aspect to this whole business world, which he's opening up. Let's just keep it there as a question and then see, because it's... Um, because that voyage is now ahead of, we're just entering into it right now. Yeah. We're just, we're getting off of land and are you all ready to go to sea? <laughs> I'm gonna bring the bottle Been over there. here. <laughs> <laughs> Been there, done that. Even with cannibals. Mm. Well, I'm serious. So. Okay, <laughs> let's take New a look. Brit New Britain and Port Moresby. <laughs> Sat with, the, sat with them one night. <laughs> let's take a look at the ship itself, and, and immediately Melville, Ishmael, sets before us the fundamental concerns. That is, he shows us the authority of the ship and its hierarchy. So we know the principle of rule, and even that in itself is revealing of something American here, or, or universal. But right now we're looking at it in the context of something American. The ship.
This is stunning. I, I can't tell you how glad I am to do this with you guys. What's our cut? <laughs> what? What's our cut? <laughs> Sorry, what? What's our cut? What's your... <laughs> Wait, how could I give you anything when I'm not making anything on this myself? Your cut is what? A strengthening of faith. What we learn. <laughs> Hopefully. Can you turn to chapter... That's what's wrong with America. <laughs> There you go. We just answered the big question. <laughs> okay, everybody's dismissed. Let's go home. Um, I think you're right. Chapter 26, page 154. What was that again? 154. If you look at the study guide that I've given you tonight for the chapters, even if you've already read them, it, I think it would probably help you to go over it. Just to, It will help you put the whole thing together. And I think that will be true for every section we deal with, that the study guide should help a lot. Um, it's Christmas, the, she, the ship has set out. In, uh, Ishmael introduces us to the structure of the, the hierarchy and the authority, the principle of authority working here. He says on page 154, the chief mate of the Pequod was Starbuck, a native of Nantucket and a Quaker by descent. He was a long, earnest man, and though born on an icy coast, seemed well adopted to endure hot latitudes. Go down. Looking into his eyes, you seem to see, towards the bottom of the page, you seem to see there the yet lingering images of those thousand-fold perils he had calmly confronted through life, a staid, steadfast man whose life, for the most part, was a telling pantomime of action and not a tame chapter of sounds. Um, hold on, just... Yeah. Um, yet for all his hearty sobriety and fortitude, there were certain qualities mm -hmm. in him which at times affected, and in some cases seemed well nigh to overbalance all the rest. Uncommonly conscientious for a seaman, and endued with a deep natural reverence, the wild, watery loneliness of his life did therefore strongly incline him to superstition, but to that sort of superstition which in some organizations seems rather to spring somehow from intelligence than from ignorance. Melville's extraordinary. He's so, he, he has this penetrating power to see and to find things. I mean, you know that poets have that, that they're, there's, there's, they have this facility with words to use to, to bring a light to deeper things and articulate them to help us to see. How many people would describe a man like that? And yet all of this is going to be really important for what we're about to see. Outward portents and inward presentiments, presentiments were his, and if at times these things were the welded iron of his soul, much more did this far away domestic memories of his young Cape wife and child tend to bend him still more from the original ruggedness of his nature. Go down still further to those latent influences which in some honest-hearted men restrain the gush of daredevil daring so often evinced by others in the more perilous vicissitudes of the fishery. I will have no man in my boat, he says, who is not afraid of a whale. If 
By this he seemed to mean not only that the most reliable and useful courage was that which arises from the fair estimation of the encountered peril, but that an entirely, utterly fearless man is a far more dangerous comrade than a coward. Go down at the bottom. With memories like these in him, and moreover given to a certain superstitiousness, has been said, the courage of this Starbuck, which could nevertheless still flourish, must indeed have been extreme. That is, he'd go at the top of 156. As brave as he might be, it was that sort of bravery chiefly visible in some intrepid men, which while generally abiding firm in the conflict with seas or winds or whales or any of the ordinary irrational horrors of the world, yet cannot withstand those more terrific because more spiritual terrors. He's an image of a modern, educated, civilized man. He is well-mannered. He's a gentleman. He is the first mate. He has education. He has brains. He has experience. But he cannot, and we'll see this, he cannot deal with spiritual evil. How many men can when they confront it? They can be among the most gentle people in the world. Gentlemen, we call them. How many are capable of dealing with spiritual evil? Because that's about what, he, what he's about to confront. Um, 27 on page 158. Um, we're introduced to Stubb, um, the bottom of the page. What perhaps with other things made Stubb such an easygoing, unfearing man, so cheerily trudging off with the burden of life in a world full of grave peddlers, all bowed to the, to the ground with their pecks? What helped to bring about that almost impious good humor of his? That thing must have been his pipe. This is stunning. <laughs> Stubb is presented as a very good nature, easygoing, you know, what's the easygoing, laugh it off um, sort of manner. The cause of this is pipe. Now, what does that say? Look at the bottom, or at the top of 159. For when Stubb dressed, instead of first putting his legs into his trousers, he put his pipe into his mouth. I, I, I know that there's an aspect of that. I've seen it in men. I, don't, I mean, I can't see myself very well sometimes, so I'm not sure what people see in men, me that I don't see. But we know of people who have an attachment to... I remember one of my dearest friends would always put that, that beeper on his belt. He could not go anywhere without that beeper to connecting him to his job. If it were, if it were midnight, he would put it on his pajamas. <laughs> That, that there are physical objects that so ties to the world that we almost depend on them for our life. Um, the third man was Flask, a native of Tisbury in Martha's Vineyard, a short, stout, ruddy kind of man, go down, um, so dead to anything like an apprehension of any possible danger from encountering them that in his poor opinion, the wondrous whale was but a species of magnified mouse, yeah. <laughs> or at least water rat requiring only a little circumvention and some small application of time and trouble in order to kill and boil. So let's get this out. So at the very beginning, we're looking at something in America. We've got Starbuck, the first mate, right? Um, Stubb and flats. And we know that each one of them has one of the savages as their harpooner. Um, let's see. And they go. 
And it says of the first mates that they're all American, they're Native Americans, and they're the brains of the ship. And that the harpooners are all, they're, they're Native Islanders. Um, what's the word? Natural savages from all over the world. They represent, they come from different places. So that Melville, is exploring something inherent in the very nature of democracy itself. Because you know, like, like Othello. Remember, Othello came in from an outside world and what happened to him when he engaged with Iago. That we have an image of democracy in some sense here. We have these white people who have been civilized and cultivated. They're all educated. They're the, they're the, the driving forces, the brains of the industry. And these servants, these people serve. And then we've got the rest of the crew which we know is made up from people all over the world. Just quickly here, going over. Um, page 160, first of all was Queequeg, he says, but we know him already. Next, Testigo, um, an unmixed Indian. Um, Testigo's long, lean, sable hair, his high cheekbones and black rounding eyes for an Indian. Oriental in all their largeness, but Antarctic in their glittering expression. Um, like Queequeg, he has that kind of instinctive, um, athletic strength, prowess, that makes him capable as a harpooner. Same thing of Dagu, at the top of 161. Third among the harpooners was Dagu, a gigantic, cold, black Negro savage with a lion-like tread. Perfect description. Go down, curious to tell, this imperial negro, Ahasuerus Dagu, was the squire of Little Flask, who looked like a chess man beside him. As for the residue of the Pequod's company, be it said that at the present day, not one in two of the many thousands men before the mast employed in the American whale fishery, this is an American industry, um, are American born. Not one in two are American-born. America, by its very nature, is made up of immigrants. That's been true of us. It will, hopefully, it will always be true, even with our current difficulties. Um, go on over, Tafu 162. They were nearly all islanders in the Pequot. He, he, he gives the description of, of going out on these journeys, picking up people all along the way, and then dropping off on the way home, so that you, what, we would use the word turnover, wouldn't we, in business? Truly, the people are expendable. You go out, you get new people, you pick up. We're getting a glimpse of America here. They were nearly all islanders in the Pequot. Isolados, too, I call such, not acknowledging the common continent of men, but each isolado living on a separate continent of his own because they come from different places. When immigrants come to our country, they bring a, a whole culture foreign to our own. They're absolutely lost. I mean, if you know anything about America, you know the first generation of immigrants here always go through tragedies. I mean, they bring their kids into this world and their kids and, and raise their kids under old customs that don't apply here. Their kids feel isolated, alone, they don't belong. So the first couple of generations are, are these experiences of bringing this sense of isolation because they come from these alien worlds into a world and learning to get along. But in that interim period, everybody's isolated. 
So the, 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 the people that make up this enterprise are all islands unto themselves. That's another characteristic of this American culture, this individuality that isolates people in this common enterprise. Um, on page 168, I just want to quickly See what time it is. No, no, no. Where I, where am I in time? Um, Twenty-five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Thanks. It's about twelve to eight. Um, One sixty-eight. I think we're doing okay. I hope we are. They set out for sea. Ahab is above deck. You, you know from your reading that he doesn't sleep well. He is wakened in the night by dreams, terrifying dreams. He relives the experience of losing his leg again and again and whatever violence is in his heart. Um, and he often goes on deck and paces. Stubb is below deck and he can't sleep because of Ahab's pacing and he goes up and speaks to Ahab in the middle of 168. So Stubb confronts his captain. Nobody has had any experiences with him up until this time. So this is one of the first things that we have of him. He hinted that if Captain Ahad was pleased to walk the planks, then no one could say nay. But there might be some way of muffling the noise <laughs> with a man who has a lost leg. Um, I mean, I, 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 how close to the bone does that strike? And I didn't mean a pun there, but... Um, um, then no one could say nay, but there might be some way of muffling the noise, hinting something indistinctly and hesitatingly about a globe of... Oh, God. God. Remember in the Iliad, those of you who were with her, how often men did things without having any sense of the consequences of their actions that we live in a fall. One of the great truths that run through all the epics is we think we're in control of things. We have this sense of self-sufficiency and we end up doing things without having a clue what the consequences are gonna be. It just reminds us that we're in a fall. We don't mean these things very often and you know, sometimes we're just not very careful or too innocent, I mean, whatever it is. Anyway, he says these things to Ahab and then it sets Ahab off. Am I a cannonball, Stubb, said Ahab, that thou wouldst wad me that fashion? But go thy ways, I have forgot, blow to thy nightly grave, where such as ye sleep between shrouds. God, his language is so noble. This is the early, really the early educated Protestants. We're so well educated. Um, blow to thy nightly grave, where such as ye sleep. <laughs> With the scorn he feels to the, to where such as you sleep. Between shrouds to use ye to the filling one at last, down dog and kennel. Yeah. Stubb is so upset that his captain would speak to the, this way that he speaks back to him, and all that does is make Ahab even angrier. He says, I won't be called these names. Then he called him ten times a donkey and a mule and an ass, and begone, or I'll clear the world of thee. Ahab starts advancing at Stubb, and Stubb backs off. It's really interesting. When I, when I was trying to put my notes together for the study guide, I was looking at some of the study guides. 
how often they get these things wrong. Somebody in one of the study guides said that Stubb gets kicked here. He doesn't get kicked. He runs away. He's he getting out of the way. But in the dream that he has that night, he dreams, you know, that he dreams, um, he kicked at Ahab and almost kicked his leg off because this is a, it's a really telling dream. But he says, top of 169, it's very queer. Stop, Stubb, somehow now. I don't well know whether to go back and strike him or what's that? Down here on my knees and pray for him? Yes, that was the thought coming up in me but it would be the first time I ever did pray. It's queer. This is a new experience for him. It's the first time he's thought about praying, and yet it comes to him. He troubles over this for a moment, and then he says down below, here goes for a snooze. Damn me. It's worth a fellow's while to be born into the world, if only to fall right asleep. And now that I think of it, that's about the first thing babies do, and that's a sort of queer too. Damn me. But all things are queer, come to think of it. But that's against my principles. Think not is my 11th commandment, and sleep when you can. His, his response, now this is so important, his response to the world's difficulties is to go to sleep, to ignore them, or not to think about them, his 11th commandment. How many men are dealing with problems? Go past them. Particularly concerning their job, because you know if they do something in their job, it could cost them their job. Better not think. So immediately, we're presented with that. Um, 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 on page um, 171, 172, we get um, Stubb describing his dream of kicking a um, a pyramid, and it's interesting, a wise old Maxman comes to him and tells him it would be better for him not to do to kick out at Ahab. I don't know what your response to that was, but as I read it, um, it was hard to believe that, that Melville wasn't aware of the stance of the early Christians when they were persecuted, that um, told the Christians that they had to obey the law even when they were persecuted that it was important to follow the law. Here is this intimidated captain, intimidating captain, that he wants to get back at, here it is again, to get back at somebody for being injured. And this dream, in this dream, a wise old man comes to him and says, don't do this. Why, how are we to understand that? I, I don't want to pick it up, but it, it's just an interesting. Um, 32, I, I want to I stop. Um, I want to look at the, um, the quarter deck, chapter 36, in a minute. But before we do, 32 is the cytology chapter, and it's a chapter. Um, um, Don Coker, who's a dear friend here, I'm, um, I hope I see him Friday. I don't know that I will, but he took the, he did the Moby Dick, the literature class with Jared, I guess now a year and a half ago, two years ago. Wow, God. Um, and he, his response to the cytology chapter was to go to sleep. He said, I, I told him if he, if he keeps coming to the class, I hope he does. I was going to ask him to give a lecture on it. But, <laughs> um, it, it seems boring. You know, why read it? It's important to read for, for two really good reasons that don't make sense unless you enter the novel world. And the first is that it's a parody. 
It's a parody of the scientific method. He's setting forth the, a, um, a way of knowing things that's, that's so peculiar to the sciences. One of the ways that you get a hold of a thing is to put it in its class and, 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 and break down those parts that make up its subdivisions. Zoology can't, can't be understood apart from that kind. Of, it's a typology. It's a way of classifying things. So the chapter lays out things in a very scientific, in accordance with scientific principles. Okay? Now the reason I'm saying this is hold on to this chapter when you get to the, to the Moby Dick, the chapter just a few chapters away, it's in our section tonight, and the whiteness of the whale. Because if you put the cytology chapter next to those, you get Moby Dick as this ubiquitous, strange, almost seemingly malevolent thing. All these um, stories and lures that grow up around him, that he seems to have this amazing kind of supernatural power. And then in the following chapter, in the whiteness of the whale, um, Ishmael is describing the strangeness of whiteness and what it does to our perception of things. So if you, if you put the cytology chapter next to um, Moby Dick, that chapter, and the whiteness of the whale, because they're in sequence, what you get are these two ways of reading, the scientific and something traditional um, that science can't get at. So he sets out two principles that we've got to carry with us as we go forward, because those are two of the basic principles at issue here, the conflict that they have with each other. Um, but going over to the, the quarter deck on page 204. This is the chapter in which Ahab calls his crew together and, um, and gets them to commit themselves to his quest. It's an amazing chapter. Um, just a few paragraphs in on page um, 204 down below. Do you mark him, flask, whispered stub? The chicks that ends him pecks the shell to a soon be out. They don't even know what they're about to experience and yet he says that. It's like there's this pent up intensity in this captain that leads to that description. And then um, um, a few paragraphs below. Um, he takes out a $16 piece. All ye mastheaders have before now heard me give orders about a white whale. Look ye, do you see this Spanish ounce of gold holding a broad bright coin to the sun? It's a $16, here's this economic aspect. I mean it's partly, an an I think partly an answer to your question. What would be motive enough for men to go on this? Well, one is they're out at sea right now, they're, they're not going to get back. But here is this enticement. Um, this $16 piece. Um, the doubloon, do you see it? Mr. Starbuck, hand me yon maul. He puts it to the mast. Receiving the top maul from Starbuck, he advanced towards the main mast with a hammer. Whosoever of ye raises a white-headed whale with a wrinkled brow and a crooked jaw, whosoever of ye raises me that white-headed whale with three holes punctured in its starboard fluke, Look ye, whoever of ye raises me that same white whale, he shall have the gold ounce, my boys. 
everybody's astir with this. Um, and he's asked if it's the same whale that took off his leg um, going over, who told, let's see. Um, who told, on page 207. Who told you that, cried Ahab, then pausing, I, Starbuck, I. My hearties all round, it was Moby Dick that demasted me. Moby Dick that brought me to this dead stump. I stand on now, aye, aye, he shouted with a terrific loud animal sob, like that of a heart-stricken moose. Aye, aye, it was that accursed white whale that raised me, made a poor pegging lubber of me forever and a day. Then tossing both arms with measureless imprecations, he shouted out, aye, aye, and I'll chase him round good hope and round the horn and round the Norway maelstrom and round perdition's flames before I give him up, and this is what ye have shipped for. He gets um, commit. He commits. Gets everybody committed. Go down a few paragraphs. Um, Starbuck says, um, "I'm game for his crooked jaw, for the jaws of death too, Captain Ahab, if it fairly comes in the way of the business we follow. But I came here to hunt whales, not my commander's vengeance. How many barrels will thy vengeance yield thee, even if thou gettest it, Captain Ahab?" It will not fetch thee much in our Nantucket, Nantucket market. I mentioned the Iliad in this, in this context, I, I think last week or two weeks ago. Remember the Iliad. The, the great issue at the, at the center of the Iliad was honor and whether you can put a price tag on honor. Because remember, everything that motivates the men in the Iliad is booty. They want to get things. And I, I suggested then that that's really a picture of a our modern world, that the reason we do things is to get something back. Remember the opening lines, he said, um, it's a horrible thing to have to work for payment. It's an um, exceptional blessing to be paid for things. And he mentions Adam and Eve, that because he's dealing with the fall. We have to work, I mean, the Bible says we have to work the, spread of our, the, the sweat of our brows, um, that we're not in Eden anymore. Um, I, whenever, whenever I read this passage, I think about the people who, who sue somebody when somebody's died, you know, to get $5 million for the, I mean, how much money can pay off the loss of somebody you love? I mean, it's a, it's a strange predicament for all of us. It's one of the effects of the fall. Um, going over, this is the center of this chapter, and in some ways it seems to me the center of the book. On 208, he says, hark ye again, the little lower layer. Remember now, we're at sea. We're going into depths. We're looking below the surface. Hark ye yet again, the little lower layer. All visible objects, man, are but pasteboard masks. But in each event, in the living act, the undoubted deed, there some unknown but still reasoning thing puts forth the moldings of its features from behind the unreasoning mask. If man will strike, strike through the mask, how can the prisoner reach out except by thrusting through the wall? Implicitly, what's the, the premise here is that we are existential prisoners. We are caught in this life. How can the prisoner do it but, um, except by thrusting through the wall? To me, the white whale is that wall shoved near to me. Sometimes I think there's not beyond, but tis enough. He tasks me, he heaps me. I see in him outrageous strength with an inscrutable malice sinewing it. That inscrutable thing is chiefly what I hate and be the white whale agent or be the white whale principal. That is, does he belong to the secondary causes of things in our world, things that are set in motion? 
right? One thing causes another, that's our contingent world. Or is it a principle? Is it behind them as the source of things? It doesn't matter for him. Um, but tis enough he tasked me, he, I see in him outrageous strength with an inscrutable malice sinewing it. That inscrutable thing is chiefly what I hate and be the white whale agent or be the white whale principal. I will wreck that hate upon him. Talk not to me of blasphemy, man. I'd strike the sun if it insulted me. For could the sun do that, then I could do the other, since there is ever a sort of fair play herein, jealousy presiding over all creations. Um, it's at this point um, that the, um, going over 209, that the crew commits itself. And notice the resemblance between this and the mass. This is striking. At the bottom of 209, drink and pass, he cried, handing the heavy charged flagon. He has the harpooners take off their um, points, invert them, and uses them as chalices for this drink. And it's the drinking of that cup, that chalice, that, that ratifies their commitment. The crew alone now drank, round with it round, short drops, long swallows, men, tis hot as Satan's hoof. So, so, it goes round excellently, it spiral, spiralizes in ye, forks out at the serpent's snapping eye. Well done, almost drained, that way it went. This way it comes, hand me, here's hollow, men, you seem the, you seem the years, so brimming life is gulped and gone. Steward, refill, it goes on. You know what's going to happen after this. It's, it's really interesting because that night, all of the sailors carouse, and they're drinking, and a knife fight breaks out, the storm stops it, but a knife fight breaks out. It's as if the nervous energy that's set in motion in this ritual is so pent up that they almost can't contain it. And they're, almost, they're gonna kill each other in a knife fight and, and the storm stops it. Um, let, me, let me stop just for a moment. Um, I wanna, um, I wish we had time going over to the, um, on chapter 41, um, what page is 41? 226. What is it? 226. 226. That chapter on Moby Dick um, describes him as this ubiquitous, strange thing. It's like a prodigy. And, um, and in the following chapter, In the Whiteness of the Whale, it describes him with this supernatural kind of hue that, that um, encourages men to, to look at it in terms of their superstitious beliefs. So I think we're really meant to hold the cytology chapter, the more scientifically, seemingly objective presentation against these other chapters. Um, and I don't want to go there tonight, but just hold on to them. I want to stop here for a moment and just um, a couple of questions. Where does Ahab get his power over the men to get them to do this? And how, how are we to understand this moment when he gathers everybody together, hold on for one second before you do. That night on, in chapter 38, Starbuck says, my soul is more than matched, she's overmatched and by a, bad, a madman. Starbuck is the most moral man in that company, truly, the most moral. He's the first mate. There's nothing he can do to stop Ahab. What does that say about 
Starbuck and our civilization. He's a captain of industry. He knows his work. He's experienced. He's Christian. He's a respectable person. Um, he can't deal with Ahab. Um, he's impotent in, in the face of a spiritual evil. On, in chapter 41, the chapter entitled Moby Dick. Sorry, Bob, do you have the... Is it 226? What? Yeah. 226. Mm -hmm. It begins, I, Ishmael, was one of that crew. My shouts had gone up with the rest. My oath had been welded with theirs, and strength stronger I shouted, and more did I hammer and clinch my oath because of the dread in my soul. A wild, mystical, sympathetic feeling was in me. Ahab's quenchless feud seemed mine. With greedy ears, I, I learned the history of that murderous monster against whom I and all the others had taken our oaths of violence and revenge. He, and remember, he, he went on board seeking adventure. It's a commercial enterprise. But at this point, Ishmael, along with all of the other men, now commit themselves to this quest of vengeance. And you know that before he came on, he had that moment that night with Queequeg when the two of them were in bed and he was smoking. And he said, my splintered heart softened that that attitude that he reveals in the opening lines begins to soften, but then he, he boards ship and he sets out. You know, um, so at this point, Ishmael is a part of Ahab's quest, even though he didn't go on board intending anything like this. Okay? He'll undergo some changes as we go along, and it'll, it'll be important to look at them, but at least at this point, he's committed. So my question here is, where did Ahab get this power? He's like a demagogue. He's, he's like a leader, a political leader who, who manages to unify this group and get them to a common purpose, even though it's violent. How, what does that say about us? Where does he get this power? So what is, what is Melville showing us here? What's, anybody want to? Personality cult. He, first he had them drink to get them pliable, and, and his... Sorry. <laughs> the timing couldn't have been better. Well, I took advantage of it because it was just... Yes, and his massive personality, they're now hooked into them, and he used a form of mass hypnosis to do that. What does that mean, mass hypnosis? That's, I mean, where, where does it show... Show that in the text. What is, I mean, show the language. What's well, mass I hypnosis? Go, I can go back and pick that out for you if you want. It would be I'll good. I'll bring it to you next time. Good, okay. No, I think the psychology is, and you could ask the same question of Adolf Hitler. You've got, you've got a, a exactly. you know, personality cult. You've got a, a lost culture that, you know, is. It's Christian under Hitler, too. And, yeah. And, and they're looking for something. And when an enigmatic figure comes before them, it seems to have the answer that they're looking for. Mm -hmm. Or they have no other answer, and the fact that somebody's got one is a great thing. They can, they can mass an incredible power. And I think that's kind of what you're seeing here with, with Ahab. He's got that energy. He's got that, that, that inner strength, at least that's what they see. And, and we've already talked about the lost culture on the land. Yeah. I mean, these people, they're all looking for something. I mean, the whole reason that Ishmael left was he's, he's looking for something. He doesn't know what it is, but he's looking yeah. for it. 
and here you got a guy, if, if they're on a boat, yeah. they're out to sea, they have no other choices, <laughs> and you got this guy standing in front of you. Would that be enough? That you have the well, wait, I want to, because uh, there's a couple of things there. He is the captain. Wait, wait, hold on. You use the word enigmatic. That's why. Can you flesh that out? I mean, what does that say? Um, Relate that to Ahab and make it concrete for us. Well, uh, enigmatic. How and why? Where? What? Well, you know, he's 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 got an, he's got you you got to me you've got you've got people that are struggling to find a way, and in in all of, in all of them it may be a little different. And and when you've got somebody that's got that 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 spirit, whether it's you know good or bad, whether it's you know he he believes that he. He knows what it is that he's doing, and he believes in it so strongly that he can convince other people of the same thing. I mean, he's he's almost you know, and I I don't know whether it's true or not, but I I, I read an article that said you know Mo Moby Dick is, is almost God in this in this. To lots of people, he is. Yeah. And and Ahab, you know, like all of us, sometimes we just get mad at God. You know, we blame him for whatever it is that. You know we're we're dealing with, yeah. and you know he's he he is so focused on on dealing with that injustice mm -hmm. that he's just sucking everybody else right in with him because they haven't quite figured out what they're looking for yet either. And here's somebody that's absolutely convinced that he knows what it is. Tibby, I think. Wait, so can you just because just we're also I think not giving enough credit to expectations. And tradition. The men are aboard a ship. There's a captain of the ship. They know that he's in charge. They haven't seen him. They don't know anything about him. That's why he's Which adds to the magic. mystery and the magic, yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 But he, he's finally presenting himself to them. Mm -hmm. And they're going to listen. They don't know they don't know anything other than to listen to him because they can't really oppose him or suffer the consequences of a mutiny and Starbucks can, yeah, right, yeah. It's also, oh, it's also an American thing to defend what's wrong, what with the wrong there. Go back to the Revolution. We, they all gathered together to defend yeah, themselves yeah, against yes, the king. Yeah. So they are convinced he's the captain. He's telling them all the things that this whale has done against them, yes. against him. So they're ready. Or all to the help wrongs of the world, not even the whale. Him. Yeah. Because note, I mean, the question that I wanted to ask um, is, with greedy ears, I learned the history of that m murderous monster against whom I and all the others had taken earth of violence and revenge. That. Could he have done what he did if he didn't appeal to their sense of having been wronged? Exactly. Because can a leader amass that kind of power mm -hmm. without seeming to redress something? And how powerful, I mean, think about current affairs anywhere in the world. When you feel like you've been wronged and somebody is so intensely focused on answering it and everybody's joined in that because everybody has suffered, then don't you have a greater power over them than you would over somebody who, who didn't feel that? I mean, I thought, and it's interesting the way you put it, that, that the American character, I mean, that's, you, I mean, your words were so precise. The American character is based on answering a wrong. And add to that a Protestant notion of protesting against that there is at the center of this culture and this action this deep sense of being wronged and wounded. And, and Ahab not only makes his appearance, 
but he does it with a purpose that's absolute. No matter, nothing's going to stop him. If that appeals to your sense of having been wronged, and you think you can suddenly get satisfaction out of this now, how liable are you to be manipulated by? Plus, you have a visual of that ivory leg. Yeah, right. There right. it is. Yeah, right. At yeah, him. right. Well, yeah. Debbie, I'm sorry. You, well, said, no, you said exactly what I was going to say, and I think that actually Adolf Hitler is the perfect parallel because all the German people felt that they had been wronged after World War One. Yeah. They were severely punished, and he was—he said, "I'm going to make you crazy." Haven't you heard that? I'm, I'm, I'm going. I'm going to right this wrong. We are going to. We are going to be victorious. And so they just lined up right behind. And I think that's that. What you said is exactly what I was going to say. Germany yeah. will be great he again. Had, he had a he had a picture of what it was of the revenge. It was Moby Dick, yeah. and all they all felt like they wanted revenge about all the wrongs that had been done to them, and he was showing them something very physical that they could be part of. Yeah, the the one I just want to add this, and then we have to stop. Not to, I mean, we don't have time to take this up, but in the Hitler case, at least, there's this interesting. Um, aspect to it, that with Hitler it wasn't just addressing wrongs, it's also um, actively going after the Jews in the way that he conceives of this. So it wasn't just redressing a wrong, it's blaming a certain people in a way that, that distinguishes what he did from a leader who's, say, doing what Ahab is doing. But that's that's a little bit more... I think there's one, one other piece to that is it's something that you can actually physically do. You know, if you got if right. you're struggling with something, if you can you name the, you can't figure out what it is, right. but somebody can tell you it's that yes. white whale out there. Right. And if you don't get that whale, things are going to be so much better. Yeah. Well, no, yeah, because he did it to him. So, but well, you're right. But do they believe? I mean, I mean it didn't work out that but way. <laughs> does that stop somebody from carrying out a? a Plan of vengeance, but listen. The, the one, the one thing I want to leave everybody is this question I asked earlier that I was described as being dark, and I just Jane's I, Jane's description I thought was just so right on. I mean, for you to pinpoint it like that, that it's in the American character to define itself in terms of wrongs. How how much does that define us? And let me put it this way: Are there buried implications to that that we don't see in our psyche, the American psyche? The, the, that it's that it's a like a a structure in our consciousness that takes the form of having to have a scapegoat to point to and blame to define our actions. I, that's just a question. I just want to leave it because Ahab Ahab is the center of this quest, and it's what defines his action. Ishmael is a part of it right now, along with everybody else. What does that say? Does does that say something about? the very deepest aspects of us as Americans. Let me just leave it there, okay, for us to think about. See you guys. We're out of time. See you guys next week. Well, all I can say is the time I had the, the deal where we are going to get attacked by pirates in, in Manila, and I didn't tell the crew until the day we were leaving port. Thank you for the <laughs> They did not react the way the crew had did here. <laughs> One guy had a machete in his hand and he said, his question to me was, Bob, if we get attacked, I'm coming to you first. That's what he told me. <laughs>
thought of you because you know we're talking about being bigger. <laughs> Yeah. 